good to sing together, isn't it? Yeah. Livens you up, wakes you up to the truth of who God is, how he feels about it, what he's calling us to do. So we want to come to him right now. We want to make sure that in every time that we gather together as the people of God, that we are setting our hearts on him, and then we're speaking with our Father in heaven. Uh, and so a couple of things I want us to center on today. First of all, on your way out today, you're going to receive a little card like this. It just says, who is God calling you to pray for this Easter? And you remember last week we talked together about in this Easter season, thinking about who is it in our life that God has called us to bless, to encourage, to love, and to pray for. I would love for one of you to pick... Oh, <laughs> we'll start again. I would love for you guys to pick one of these up. Uh, so that you can have a tangible reminder, you can put it in your wallet, you can put it on the fridge. But it's easy, and maybe it's just me, it's easy to forget when you challenge yourself like this and you think of, of something that God's calling you to, it kind of fades away in the busyness. So I just wanted to give us something simple, easy, a way for us to focus our minds and our hearts. Because the, the whole message of Easter is that God came to us, that he saw us, that he loved us, and he moved towards us. And so we want to be moving towards those around us as well, with the hope of who Christ is. So... Make sure you grab those on your way out. But the, the second thing I want to pray for is a, a prayer request I got just this morning as we were starting church from, uh, from Donna. She mentioned that at Lord of Life Preschool, where she works, there's a young boy named Sam who right now, unfortunately, is, is fighting for his life, had a respiratory infection. And so this is the exact kind of thing that as a family, we want to gather around. We want to pray for Sam. We want to lift him up to the Lord because we believe there's a God who does miracles, right? We believe that there's a God that heals, that loves, and that is present with those who are suffering and in distress. So we're just going to lift Sam up. But I would encourage you as well, anyone that you're thinking of right now in this season, in this time in the service, we want to be lifting them up to the Lord. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time just to gather and to pray together, Lord. It's easy to pray by ourselves at home, but God, just to gather together as your people. You tell us where two or three are gathered, there you are. And so, Lord, we believe and put our trust that you are present with us this morning. Father, we lift up little Sam boy that you love, that you see, God, you are not blind to his suffering, his sickness. God, you are not blind to the suffering and the distress of his family. And so, Lord, we, we lift up the one that you love, that you already see, and God, we ask for you to work grace in his life. God, we ask for healing for him. Lord, we pray that his body would fight this illness. We pray that doctors would have wisdom and grace to to follow the details carefully, to understand how to address it. And God, we pray for comfort for Sam and his family, Lord, that they would know your peace. That even, Lord, as they are fearful, as they struggle, even as the staff at the school and other families see this and are fearful, God, I pray that you would bring peace and confidence. That you are trustworthy and that you are good. And we lift him up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who here would consider themselves pretty good at promise keeping? Show of hands. Come on. Okay, at least we've got an honest congregation. I was going to call you out if you said you were good. Yeah, I, I try to be good with promises. The truth is I probably dish out far more promises than I actually keep. Um, for one, I, uh, I don't keep promises to myself very well. I promised myself that this winter I would not be gaining any winter weight. 
My scalers confirmed that that was a lie. I broke that <laughs> promise pretty badly. I'm, uh, I'm sad about that. So maybe we can whack it off. My kids are pretty good at promises. We talk with them all the time about making promises and the importance of that. I make promises to my kids too. I say, if you eat all of your dinner, I promise you can have a treat. Where things go wrong is sometimes I promise them a treat before checking to see if we have it available. <laughs> so you can imagine the uh, nuclear war that breaks out when dad goes to look for the ice cream and it's not there anymore. Coincidentally, uh, that, that promise that gets broken is because of the promise to myself that I also broke as well. That's why this is happening. <laughs> so we, we struggle with this. We all know it in our relate. hearts. Promises are these beautiful things, relate. but we're not great at them. And it's not just on an individual level. I think that we'd all agree that often we feel like we live in a culture and in a world of broken promises. We've got politicians that promise things to us that they can't deliver. We've got economists that promise things to us that they can't guarantee or accurately predict. We've got products that promise things to us that are unrealistic or too expensive. There's all kinds of promises that are made and exchanged every day that are not kept. But today we are looking at a promise of God, the promise of God, the most important promise that God has ever made. Last two weeks of our Genesis study, we're going to look at this promise, at this hope that God offers to two people who have failed to be what they were made to be. If you remember last week, we left off at the most tragic moment of Genesis. We've been traveling through this beautiful story of God creating human beings in his own image intentioning them and designing them to be his image bearers in the earth, to be his representatives in the earth, to rule and reign with him, to order creation, to love creation, to protect what God has done. And in Genesis 3, we find out that a terrible exchange takes place, that these two human beings that were created for so much more at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they make an exchange. They exchange God for themselves. They place themselves in that spot. And they do that because they were manipulated by two lies. Two lies that took down everything that God intended. First lie is this, that God is not good. The serpent in the garden, he says, did God really say to you? In this mocking tone, he says, really? God would ask you not to eat of a tree? He would really do that? The kind of heart behind that is God's not good. Anything that he asks of you, it's, it's, it's not really interested in your good. And that leads into the second lie, which is, you don't need God. God is not needed. He's withholding from you, so just, just do away with him. You can do this yourselves. You guys can run this. You don't need him. We find out at the end of Genesis 3 that those two lies, when they are swallowed, when they are believed, paves the way for every painful, broken, and horrid thing that has ever been experienced in the world. Two lies that undo everything. But as always, what we are looking at in Genesis is not just the bad news, but the good news. Because there is good news. Even here at the worst moment, what we could describe as the most tragic moment of all human history, there is good news. And it's coming from God. Because God, as he responds to Adam and Eve, we find out that he moves towards them. Even as they hide from him, he moves towards them. And now we're going to find that he's going to make a promise. As he speaks to the seven, as he addresses the one who deceives them, he makes a promise. And that promise spans three moments that I want to call the curse, the conflict, and the cross. We're going to find out that here, God offers what is the greatest news anyone could ever receive. 
Even today in our life, we're so far removed from this world and we view Genesis as this ancient, almost mythical story. But the truth is, is what is offered here in Genesis 3 is offered to us this morning. To take for ourselves, to own for ourselves, to believe and trust in for ourselves. So let's not waste time. I want you to pray with me that this morning we'd hear what God has to say. Let's pray together. Father, we are glad to be here together reading your word. God, we pray that you would open up the scriptures to us, that you would breathe your spirit on us to see what you want us to see, to see what we must see, so that we can know the good news of your promise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this first moment we see in Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is the curse, the curse of the serpent. Now a few, uh, it was about six, seven months ago, and now it was last summer, um, I lose track of time, don't uh, trust my math on that, but it was the summertime when, and we took the family out to Leroy Oaks, which is a park close by here, I don't know if you guys have ever been, and we're strolling through the park, uh, and then all of a sudden, Jonathan looks down and screams, and then we all look down and scream, and what's wrapped around Jonathan's little leg? A snake. I was promised there was no snakes in Illinois. I used to live in Texas. I know what snakes are. I don't like snakes. And I was promised that they're not up here. But there it was, Kellen around his little leg. You would have thought everyone except Janae had just completely lost it. We freaked out. We're screaming. We're running for our lives. Janae being the calm, cool, collected person she is, kind of looks and is like, oh, yeah, that's not nice. And then just moves on. The rest of us run for our life, right? Because it's inbuilt into us. We don't like snakes. If you are the kind of person that likes snake, you are an anomaly. Most human beings, it's just inbuilt into us. We don't like them. There's something gross about them. There's something weird about them. And it was the same on that day. And I think part of what we see in Genesis is the use of that kind of image to help us understand who it is who deceived us. This idea of a serpent is an explanation to us of who it is who has deceived us. This is what we're told in Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cast to you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here in Genesis 3.14, God issues his judgment, and it is a promise of justice. It's a promise that the one who has deceived his children will face judgment. Now the question that always comes up almost immediately when you read this is, why would God punish a snake by making it crawl on its belly? In fact, I, I saw a British comedian, Ricky Gervais, once, he's a, an atheist, and he mocks this very passage by saying, kind of plays out the scene between God and the serpent, where he says, you're going to crawl on your belly, and the snake says, well, hang on, I already, oh, wait, no, that's a good punishment. Yeah, I'll take that. It's kind of ludicrous, right? Why would God punish a serpent by putting it on its belly? Well, maybe this isn't what it seems like. Maybe God is not talking about a literal serpent. Maybe the idea in Genesis isn't a literal snake. You'll notice that when you read this in your Bible, the, the moment when God speaks, both to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, it's kind of indented a little bit, almost like poetry. And that's because it is poetry. This is ancient Hebrew poetry. And you'll even see this if you could understand it in Hebrew, that there is a rhyming pattern to it, there's a structure to it, there's a, a uniqueness to it. It's not meant to be read like a kind of scientific, historical play-by-play -play of the moment. God is kind of articulating something that he sees in that moment and expressing it to us. And often in the Bible, God loves analogy. He loves metaphors. 
I think that God's an artist, and so he likes to communicate and express to us in very artistic ways. And that's true here. It might be true that snakes at one time had legs, but that's not the point. That's not what this is trying to communicate to us. It's trying to communicate to us that the one who deceived us is snake-like. He is serpent-like. He is insidious. He is dangerous. He is deadly. Revelation makes clear who this serpent was. If we go all the way to the end of our Bible, this is what we read in Revelation 12. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This serpent that we encounter in the garden is Satan, a once proud angel who has rebelled against God and has been thrown down. And there's a whole category of Christian doctrine and theology that explore this. But what's important for us this morning is to understand that this one who is described as a serpent is done so because he is serpent-like. He's insidious. Jesus says that he witnessed his actual fall from heaven. He says in Luke ten eighteen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So there is a sense in which this is, this is a true event. He's a real being. It's a real person. This is not a poetic figure, even if his punishment is expressed in that way. What we're told by God is that this creature is going to crawl on his belly and he's going to eat dust. And this is kind of a cultural way of saying he's going to be utterly humiliated. He's going to be forced low. He's going to be put low because of what he's done. He's going to be treated as less than all the beasts of the field. He's going to face consequences that are far more dramatic and rough than any creature has ever experienced. And here's why this is good news beyond the obvious of God's clearly seeing one that's deceived them. It means that God's a God of justice. It means that when God sees wrong and when he sees evil and when he sees deception, he always moves towards it. He always moves to deal with it. Now think about that for a moment. Don't we need to see that side of God? Don't our hearts long to know whether God is a God of justice? Sometimes we struggle with it, we're intimidated and we're fearful. Well, what if he judges us? We don't, we don't know if we want to look at that side of God, but the truth is, we all need to see that side of God. We need to know that God cares about evil, that he wants to address evil, that he wants to move against evil. Even if that's sometimes found in our own hearts. It's a hope that we can hold on to throughout our lives that God will deal with injustice. Now we may struggle with that because we don't always see it in our immediate experience and in fact, many people in the Bible, in the Psalms, we would see these beautiful poems that would write, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to let evil go on in the world? When are you going to deal with the things that ail us? When are you going to put an end to war and destruction and strife? But if we could see with God's perspective, we could see that his justice is always moving. If you like, we live between two ticks of the clock. And as that hand moves, we, we wonder whether we're going to see it, but that hand is moving. God's justice is coming. He promises it. He guarantees it to us. And so if you are here this morning wondering if God sees the injustice in your life, if he sees the injustice in the world around you, the answer is yes. God is never blind. Even as Adam and Eve face consequences for their own actions, he does not avoid judging that serpent. 
He sees it. He brings justice. God promises justice for mankind. And that means that we are all going to face conflict. So let's talk about that conflict. Last week, I uh, kind of pushed the boundaries for an Andrew Griffith seminar. And I, I used sports in my analogy. And it was perfect because now we get to hear part two. Last week, I was talking about this awful trade that the Red Sox made uh, towards the start of last century when they traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees, one of the worst sports trades in history. But it's also convenient for talking about curses because what happened when Babe Ruth was uh, traded is it, uh, that problem came to be known as the curse of the Bambino. Thank you. And for the next kind of few decades, there was this rivalry that developed between the Red Sox and the Yankees. It was completely hostile. And in fact, I'm, I'm told that prior to the Red Sox win of the World Series, if you had gone to Boston wearing a Yankee shirt, you might have left with a few bruises. The rivalry was so intense. It was so hostile. It was so kind of right on the edge of warfare. Well, the same thing happens here in Genesis 3. Is that because of this curse... A battle is opened up, a rivalry, a hostility is opened up between mankind and this serpent that has deceived them. We're told in Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. See, this conflict that Genesis talks about between mankind and this serpent is a promise that there is hope for mankind. That God's not done with us. You see, he could have easily said, I'm going to group all of you guys together. Every single one of you have disobeyed me, have rebelled against me. But what God does is he separates out mankind. And he does something really interesting. Because this serpent, what he had intended to do was to put enmity between mankind and God. To, to make us distrust him. To make us fearful of him. But what God says is... I'm going to move that enmity that you have tried to plant between me and mankind, and I'm going to put it between mankind and you. I'm going to move that enmity. And so it begins this struggle with him, and we're told about this throughout the Bible. Paul says this in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here's what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a constant struggle against the lies of the serpent. It is an ongoing battle to believe that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he will do. It is a confrontation of the two lies that God is not good and that God is not needed. Now, I want to pause as we kind of get into this conversation about what some Christians will call spiritual warfare, this idea of this struggle between us and Satan or demonic forces. And I think it's important to remember the words of C.S. Lewis as we go into this, who said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an unhealthy, excessive interest in them. And they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Here's what C.S. Lewis's point was. He's saying, and this was taken from his book, The Screwtape Letters, he's saying that 
Demons would love for us to fall into one of two categories, to never think about them or to think about them too much. And what we need to remember at the outset of any kind of conversation about spiritual warfare is our attention should not be fixed on them, it should be fixed on God. That even as we consider that we are in a struggle, the important character in that struggle is not Satan, it's not demons, it's Christ. It's to set our eyes on him. Because how did we get in this mess? We took our eyes off him and we fixated him on a serpent that was lying to us. And so the only way to undo that is to move our attention back to the place where it belongs. Now, if we go back to Genesis, what he says is there's a uniqueness to this enmity. It's going to be between the woman and the serpent and his offspring and her offspring. Who are the offspring of the serpent? You ever read this and wonder, well, who, who's that? Is there some kind of inheritor of the, this title? There is. And I want to read this from John 8 because I think that this explains who the inheritor is. And it's maybe something that we're not going to like to hear. John 8, 42 through 44. Jesus is in a conversation with his critics and this is what he says. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. One of the most brutal uh, insults that Jesus ever leveled against anyone. You are of your father the devil. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to hear that? Why would Jesus say something like that? Jesus who loves us, Jesus who came for us, who desires to know us and to walk with us. Why would he say something like that? Well, it's because Jesus knows it is possible through the way that we choose to live our lives and respond to him to become children of this serpent who lied to us. And I'll tell you why. Because when you and I intentionally resist the rule and reign of Christ in our lives, we project two lies to the world. He's not good and he's not needed. When we with our lives proclaim, I can do it apart from him, I do not need his blessing, I do not need his covering, I do not need his goodness, then are we not repeating the same mistakes of Satan? Are we not saying to the world the same thing that the serpent said to Adam and Eve? God's not good. God's not needed. That was Jesus' point. There were so many people in his day and in ours who live like both of those things are not true. We try and find ourselves in lesser things than God. We delight ourselves with sex and drink and money and power and every other impulse under the sun because we don't really believe in our hearts that God is good and that he is the place to find ultimate satisfaction for every longing of our soul. And equally, we proclaim to the world that God is not needed because we try and justify ourselves. We try and morally evaluate ourselves and say, there is no requirement for forgiveness for me. There is no requirement for rescue for me. And when we do that, we proclaim God's not needed. And if we want to be on the right side of this conflict and even understand the struggle that our own soul is in, we need to ask two questions. Where are we seeking to find our satisfaction and delight? Is God good? And to whom or what are we looking for our hope? Is 
God needed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to topple strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. His point is that this struggle for us is about where we are going to put our attention, where we're going to put our hope. We want to think about the places in our life where we are tempted to mischaracterize God, to distort who he is and what he said. And then take those thoughts captive and remind ourselves of who God really is and what God has really said. And the obvious place that this happens most often is in our own heart and mind. We are all of us in our daily life tempted to believe that God is not who he said he was. We're tempted to believe lies that Satan whispers to us that we're unforgiven, that we are unforgivable, that we are of no worth. It's not true. That's not what God has said. He has said that we bear his image, that we are beloved. Perhaps we believe lies on the other side of things, that we don't need forgiveness, and that we are perhaps in some ways more significant than some of our neighbors. This is the one that we don't like to admit, but is just as frequent as the other direction. It is easy for us to look at our neighbor and the circumstances of their life and say, well, I think I'm probably a little bit better than they are. That's a lie. All of us have fallen short of the glorious standard of God. All of us are in need of his grace. All of us. So we've got to confront those lies. We've got to take that captive and say, no, I have need of Christ. I've got to remove the log from my own eye before I look at the speck in my brother's. The only way to do this, the only way to fight this battle is to learn what God has actually said. That's what Adam and Eve failed to do. They did not recall to mind what God had said to them. It might be worth, in fact it is worth, this week, I challenge you to go and take some time and write down in a journal what it is you believe about who God is and what you believe he has said about you, how he feels about you. And then go sit down with the word of God and go anywhere in that book because it's all the same and see if what God has said about you is different than what you think he says about you. And see if what God says about himself is different than what you think he said about himself. And let the word of God change you and edit your mischaracterizations so that you see him clearly and know him clearly. Because God wants you to know him in truth. Not some caricature of him, not some opinion of him. God wants you to know for yourself who he really is. And this is why we're starting uh, this exercise this week called 20 Days Following Jesus. Some short devotional videos that every day express to us who he is and what he's doing and what he said so that we can get our hearts in line with those things. Should also be working to confront the lies of Satan in our world. And this is where it's, where it's worth saying the way that we do this is not to march and to protest and to argue and become bitter and vengeful towards the world that doesn't accept the Christian worldview. That is not at all how we confront the lies. The way that we confront the lies of the serpent is to live out publicly as if the tr these things are true. That God is good, 
and that God is needed. If you live out publicly the truths that God is good and God is needed, you don't need to fight, you don't need to argue, you don't need to quarrel because you are presenting an accurate picture of who God is. You're already confronting the lies. And this is where we get caught up a little bit because if we go back to that passage from 2 Corinthians that we mentioned, Paul says, we don't fight like the rest of the world. We don't get into this conflict and the struggle the way that everybody else does. We don't become bitter. We don't become argumentative. We don't become cruel and mocking. We present to the world an accurate picture of who Christ is, a God who is good and a God who is needed. All you need do to confront the lies of Satan in the world is to live as if those two things are true and confront those places in yourself where you are not living as if those two things are true. We all fought, face the struggle of this great conflict, but Genesis has really great news for us that there is a day when it will come to an end. Genesis promises an end to the serpent. And we find that at the cross of Christ. Last little section of Genesis 3.15 says this, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Final words of God's curse against this serpent is to promise that the serpent will one day be defeated, crushed by a descendant of the woman. This is where things get very, very cool. First of all, it's very odd in an ancient culture for you to describe a descendant as a descendant of the woman. Some older translations would say the seed of the woman. That was a very bizarre thing to say because in that culture, it was almost near exclusively described if you were a descendant as a seed of the man because that's, that's how families flowed. You, you flowed from the patriarch. And yet here, God says, no, it will be a descendant of the woman. Can you think of a character in the Bible who was born of a woman without the seed of a man? Who was a descendant of Eve and had no father? This is a remarkable inference. A lot of theologians think of a virgin birth. It's also, by the way, as once was remarked by Anselm of Canterbury, a beautiful and poetic act of grace towards Eve. Because what God is saying is, sin may have entered the world through her choice, but so will the Savior. I will redeem this woman because even though she has made this choice today, I will bring through the line of women someone who will redeem and restore. We're told that this offspring of Eve will have his heel bruised by the serpent, but the serpent will have his head bruised by Eve's offspring. Now some... Bible translations will say, bruise his heel and crush his head. And the reason it does that is, even though these two words is the same Hebrew word, the point is that a wound on the heel is temporary and a wound on the head is fatal. So a bruise to the head is fatal. Can you think of a character in the Bible who might experience a terrible wound that would prove to be temporary, but who himself brought a final blow to the work of the serpent? Someone whose heel was bruised who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Do you know what we're reading right here in Genesis 3.15? It barely a few pages into the story of God. It's a promise of Jesus. Right here, even now, even before Adam and Eve have even left Eden, God says, I'm promising you my son. I'm promising to set this right for you. Remember, we're going to get to some moments where God has some consequences for Adam and Eve too. But before he even touches that, he says, I'm going to redeem these people. 
I am going to give them what is most precious to me. And this promise of God to give them his son is going to define everything that happens from Genesis to Revelation. It is the promise in which the whole Christian faith is built. And Jesus says as much following his resurrection. Jesus says in Luke 24, 27 to his disciples, says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus explains everything that has ever happened in this story throughout all of Israel's history with Moses, with Abraham, with David. All of it was so that this promise in Genesis 3.15 could happen. In Colossians 2, we said, we're told this, that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Open shame. Might as well said he made them crawl on their bellies and eat dust. I love that. It is a complete reversal of the story of Genesis 3, isn't it? That here Adam and Eve experience shame and they hide and one day Jesus will come to make sure that that same shame would fall on the head of the one who deceived them. He undoes their shame by placing it on their enemy. How does Jesus accomplish this? Why do we believe as Christians that he is the one that this is talking about? How does he crush the head of the serpent? Well, think about this. What was the principal failure of Adam and Eve? What did they do wrong? How did they mess up? They chose God or they chose themselves over God. That was where things went wrong. They chose themselves over God. And what does Jesus do? Every day, every hour, every second of his life, he chooses God over himself. He says, I only do what my father does, even to the point of death. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus didn't try and reach for equality with God. He didn't grasp equality with God. Isn't that the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did? Didn't they grasp for equality with God? And yet Jesus says, no, I will humble myself to the point of death. Jesus lives the life that Adam and Eve should have lived. And Jesus lives the life that you and I should have lived. And then Jesus goes to his own tree. His own tree where he hangs on that tree and he allows death to swallow him up. The death that Adam and Eve deserved and that you and I deserve. Do you understand now the compassion and the mercy and the love of God for you? That at this worst moment, at this moment in which human beings have rejected him, he does not reject them. And furthermore, he gives them what is most precious. Adam and Eve had believed that God was not who he said he was. And what God does in this moment in Genesis 3.15 is he says, I am not what that serpent told you I was. I am not a God who withholds from you. I am a God who will give you what is most precious to me. My only beloved son. I am the God who loves you beyond measure. What profoundly good news. News that every single one of us need to hear. 
when we fear that we're rejected, when we fear that there isn't a God who is good, he tells us right at the beginning of the story, I will love you and I will give myself for you. God's promise to you and his son is that he will bring justice, he will bring hope, he will bring redemption for everyone who comes to him in faith. And I hope you see that great comfort that even in this moment of failure, God is already waiting with a rescue plan. He's committed to the cross. That is still true today and it's still true for you. No matter where you are, come to the one who was bruised for you so that the head of the serpent might be crushed and that everything that would distract you from seeing the God who loves you would be done away with. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this promise, this amazing promise right here, even as they stand moments away from their own failure. God, you come to Adam and Eve and you promise to deal with the one who deceived them. You commit to not withhold anything from them, but to give them your son, your only son, whom you loved. That Christ Jesus, you would come and dwell and walk with us and allow yourself to be bruised by our transgressions and our iniquities so that in your life and your death and your resurrection, Lord, you would crush the head of the one who has deceived us so badly. Father, we are here to worship him, to lift him up, and to put our eyes and our hearts on him. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen. As we close today, I hope, I hope you remember and see the goodness of the God who would give himself for you. I, just want, I want you to sit in that this week, to let that rest in you, to not rush on, because again, we, we can read things like this and it just it vanishes throughout the week in the busyness. But you, in your soul, in your heart, you need to remember this God who is not as the serpent told you he was, but who does not withhold anything from you. On your way out, I would love for you to, again, pick up one of these little cards. If you've got your own way of doing it, that's fine. This is just a tangible way of reminding ourselves to be praying for people this Easter, to be moving towards people. Again, great thing to drop in your wallet or on your fridge. Uh, you can just write a name in there so you can grab those from the ushers on the way out. And then, again, just as a reminder, 20 days following Jesus, our little video devotional series starts tomorrow. If you want to know more about that or sign up for that so that you will get the devotionals each day, uh, you can go to chapelstreet.church news and all the information will be there. A great tool just to keep yourself reminded, keep yourself in God's word each day. But let me offer this benediction as we leave. And remember, you can always come forward for prayer. Uh, we have a prayer team that would love to pray with you in our room back there. Let me offer this. Father, may we leave this place in the name of the one whose heel was bruised for us, that he might crush the head of the serpent. May we go in the name of Christ Jesus, who is not as we were told, but who loves us beyond measure. It's in his name that we go. Amen.